it's a delight to be here for the second year of the Oxford War Group. We, we have to find a way of continuing to do this because it's such an exciting group to bring together. Uh, I'm not going to take very much time for introductions. I'm going to try to keep the same rules and conventions going. So to give Gerhard um, a, no more than five minutes, sort of three to five minutes to introduce the paper because we've all read it. And then I will give Nancy Sherman um, the opportunity to be the lead respondent for around 12 to 15 minutes. The only thing I want to say is, as someone who works on the responsibility to protect from a slightly more applied perspective, I found this a fascinating application of um, what we call in politics R2P. So I will, um, I will take us to no more than 10 past 1, because otherwise it will encroach on lunch. So, which, which unfortunately in Oxford goes for only a set period of time. So you will starve if we don't end it. <laughs> Ten past one. <laughs> Gerhard, go. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, yeah. Uh, so Vincent asked me about writing um, a paper for this uh, conference. I was very quickly thinking about uh, poverty. Uh, and I was thinking about um, how how to do that in the military context. And uh, <coughs> I mean, it seems a little bit difficult to find plausible ways that the poor actually could go to war and things like that. So I thought maybe just we can use uh, <coughs> invasion from space. I've lost my That's more plausible. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the situation is uh, that. Uh, this global poverty, and according to uh, sources, there are approximately 25,000 children dying of poverty-related causes each day. And that is pretty amazing. So, um, and then the paper sets up with a with a visit from office space where uh, uh, Kaiser meets Angel and uh, explains her about the situation of global poverty on Earth and. Uh, he wonders if he could, because he actually is a protector, which are uh, specialized in uh, humanitarian interventions. So, uh, and then the question is, should Kaiser ask him to intervene on behalf of the global poor? Uh, and then I think, uh, I mean, there are three types of costs that we have to consider. <coughs> First of all, there is the material cost to the affluent people that will uh, come after the intervention is over. Right? To what extent did they have a duty to carry this cost, to bear this cost, which will, might be either by uh, just your development aid or institutional changes that will be cost development. Right? And how much cost that will be could be it's kind of difficult to say, but I estimate or I propose that something like 5 to 10 percent could be something we could call moderate cost. And then I try to investigate to what extent that cost would be something they would have a duty to bear. <coughs> and then, of course, it's important to see to what extent the affluent are related to the poverty. And I suggest that there might be three ways in which these people, the affluent people, might be related to global poverty. 
two types of contribution. One is I call doingly related, and the other one by enabling it. Right? <coughs> and then, of course, they might have failed to prevent it. All of these three might be more or less culpable. And all of them will, all of them are sensitive to culpability in a way that the higher culpability, the more cost can be forced on the affluent people. If they innocently contribute or if they innocently fail, they are less, there are less costs you can impose on them. <coughs> so that's one type of cost. And then, of course, there's a direct cost of the intervention. Right? That means include death of soldiers and death of civilians as collateral damage. I'm here assuming that the civilians will not be targeted. I mean, we could imagine that uh, actually what they did was to target civilians in order to just to force affluent people to start changing their behavior. So that would be more like a terrorist type of uh, <coughs> use of force. And uh, I don't see anything mm, theoretically problematic with that, in, uh, but I'm just not addressing it here. So uh, <coughs> I do address it in another paper. But not here. Um, so in this paper, I'm basically interested in the killing civilians as a side effect. That means that uh, it could seem easily, more easily for <coughs> people to understand that that could be missing. And then, of course, at least the uh, soldiers who would be killed. Right? Um, how many is uh, difficult? To say, and it's very difficult to imagine to what extent uh, or how <coughs> people on Earth would react to something like this. Uh, I've asked quite a few people, uh, and quite a few people seem to support this intervention, surprisingly. Uh, but um, obviously, to what extent it is permissible to launch this intervention with a high number of soldiers as victims will also depend on to what extent we could say that the soldiers are fighting a just or an unjust war. And to what extent, if they are fighting an unjust war, which I assume they are, if it is justified to have this uh, humanitarian intervention, to what extent they can plausibly be said to fight it with an excuse. Right? So to what extent is it plausible that uh, soldiers of affluent countries defend the current situation where 25,000 children die of poverty each day. To what extent can they have a possible story to tell that would give them a good excuse for trying to prevent this intervention? <coughs> okay, I guess maybe five minutes is all. Yeah. yeah, yeah, if you can wrap up. Yeah. Do you want to stop there? Wrap up. Great. So <laughs> I will, uh, that's a fairly, that's a fairly succinct uh, summary. Sure. Oh, excuse me. Um, I'm happy to um, give some comments. Uh, well, the layout of the paper has just been, been summarized, um, and I did find it fascinating. But I, I guess I want to um, look at a little bit more uh, what sort of intervention these angelic protectors might have in mind. 
and how it might look from the eyes of a soldier. Um, so I want to make a little bit fleshier, if you will, the mixed metaphor, warrior angels, nobles, psyche. Um, so he, um, we've got uh, a military engagement, and I'm presuming it's um, primarily lethal force for protectors or warriors. Uh, but I'm not sh actually sure how it's supposed to work, and I may have misinterpreted some of what I read um, as I'm listening to your your comments. But um, in general, you're talking about soldiers taking out soldiers or military installations, I guess, with some amount of permissible collateral damage. Yet, and that's at the second part of the paper. But in the earlier discussion, what you've been talking about primarily is um, what the harms ordinary civilians produce in uh, creating and contributing, enabling poverty, um, and how they might be, in fact, uh, substantively responsible for it. So I, pres I was thinking of uh, an attack on them in some way, and so presumably not, they're not on a battlefield or working in a military installation, but um, in their homes as enablers, contributors, um, through various policies. And I had a specific example that was sort of uh, in my mind from talking to someone recently. And so just sort of imagine this. Uh, it's a more heinous version of a recent Similac um, scare. So Abbott Factories in Sturgis, Michigan, and it produces baby formula. And in order to be profitable, they've cut corners on hygiene with the result that they have cans and plastic containers of baby formula in which are beetle parts, and this is true, and beetle larvae um, that are not too uh, palatable or uh, easily taken by young stomachs. Now, so the cans are all recalled in America, but they go on to uh, be shipped to Angola so that the company won't lose massive sales um, and still remain profitable. There's some in the factory that know what's up. Most don't. Upper management presumably does know it, but um, they're keeping quiet. And many don't want to make trouble because Michigan's in tough economic times, and they don't want to lose their own jobs. So Kaiser gets the green light to militarily intervene, is sort of how I'm thinking of, or, or Kaiser gives Angel military the green light. And so I, in what sense is the factory a legitimate target? Who in it is targeted? When are they targeted? When do they have the right to resort to defensive force? To what degree is collateral damage minimized and soldiers assumed it Angel? angels assumed to take on the preponderance of harm or risk. And the example is sketchy, but I just don't know. Again, I'm, I'm very concerned about what the uh, epistemic bar is for knowing who to target and not. And you share the view that they're just and unjust combatants and also a non-categorical combatant, non-combatant distinction. So there are more or less innocent non-combatants or civilians and you say that collateral damage already erodes non-combatant immunity, so good reasons to weaken it further, you argue. But I'm one of those people, um, you know, far, it's far from who, who worry a lot about the epistemic burden on soldiers. Um, and it's even angels who may have night goggle vision that allows them to s discriminate. I don't think they have it, um, but would that they did. But I don't think they do. Between or or between contributing and enabling civilians and those that aren't. Um, 
So, you know, battles begun, and how do soldiers acquire the information needed to uh, establish degrees of moral responsibility for those involved? Um, if they target certain floors of the plant, some are upper management who might know, not clear that the upper management's actually going to be there. Uh, so it, it's that kind of worry that I have, because I actually did take you at face value as suggesting that the contributors and enablers of the affluent, like Kaisers of this world, are, or you know, where, where she works, are amongst the those to be targeted. Um, then again, I was thinking, well, maybe um, uh, some of the there are guards, there are security guards that are hired because Simulac knows its um, contributions in this area that it's producing harmful stuff. Um, and are the guards who are armed, but the civilians who work in the plant not armed, more likely, uh, you know, more liable to to um, attack than not? Um, so the, the the paper raised those kinds of questions for me, uh, precisely how our target and how you know targeters or, or practitioners, the soldiers, to know these um, morally relevant role differences in attitude. So I don't write in these specific terms, and my own approach has been to talk to soldiers who've had to make t tough choices and often who second-guess those choices uh, once the choice has been made. And for them, war is unbearably personal, and it's not just the what it's not just what they do, but the aftermath is long and 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 lasts long, and. To take moral responsibility for accidental deaths of buddies and non-combatants, to feel guilt for surviving, to feel guilt for uh, collateral damages, is in part the way that they humanize war. And I thought there—I don't know how uh, visitors from outer space take on those kinds of issues, or how we put them into the proportionality calculi. Um, in thinking about the long-term harms that soldiers um, um, take on. So that's something I want to uh, put on the table. The other thing I wasn't clear about is, is your inter your inter I must, was assuming your intervention is in a highly commingled place and even takes on um, contributing, harming non-combatants as targets. And so in, in what sense are we talking about a policing kind of intervention as opposed to a more typical war fighting intervention where more risk um, to civilians rather than less risk is is permissible. So that's a question I, I, I put out to you. Um, and um, I guess in general, uh, I think anyone like Angel's troops need to be far better prepared uh, than I think our troops currently are to be able to um, restrain lethal force and to try to make certain kinds of um, combatant, non-combatant distinctions. But it wasn't clear to me uh, if you were taking on those problems. And so I want to essentially throw that out, um, especially given where you're talking about war amongst the people, war the people being responsible for the harming, in what sense are they essentially as liable to attack as, uh, that is, civilians as liable to attack as 
as armed combatants are. So that, that's okay. the nature of the comment. Okay, so, uh, first of all, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not thinking that the protectors have any uh, superhuman ability to find out who's culpable or anything like that. They are not, right? So they are just a uh, little bit better soldiers than NATO soldiers. Right? That's all. Uh, and, uh, and what I'm thinking of is that they want to change the institutional setup, right? So that, it, it, so and in order to do that, they will have to force governments to do it. I mean, exactly how this intervention is supposed to do to work. I'm, I'm not. I mean, obviously, I'm. Uh, first of all, I'm not a military expert, so I'm not sure how to do those things. Uh, but so I can't really say much about how actually they are going to do it. Uh, and of course, but I do say, for example, that they have an exit strategy, right? right. So that if I mean, I mean, obviously, if if Earthlings decides we are not backing down there. Right? So they are just not giving in, they are just continuing to fight like the Taliban, right? So if NATO troops start doing like that, of course, this will not work. You will not end global poverty by this war. So if, as soon as they have the impression that that is what's happening, they just leave. Right? Because then they will not. Uh, uh, so they're also not like Earthlings in that regard. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I think I said. Or Earthlings right? governments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so uh, then they just leave. And maybe they will return in 10 years to see how, if we have made any progress. But uh, Are they also, you know, armed economic reformers? Like, you know, as well as armed mm -hmm. social workers? That sort of thing? Are they not only, uh, the, you know, I mean, I break the system, but also rebuild it? Um, no, they are basically fleet, right? So um, so the way in which we are supposed to do this, we have to find out. Uh, there seems to be, I'm not an expert, but there seems to be some people around on Earth which have ideas about how we should do this in order to solve this problem, right? There are obvious disputes, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, and uh, it might be not be as cheap as, for example, Thomas Borgia indicates that he thinks it is. Might be it costs like 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, so the idea is that these are just instruments. And to what extent this is permissible, that is something Kaisa or we have to decide. It's not something they have to just, uh, find out because they have some superior power. So whether or not it is permissible, it's, it's simply something we have to yeah. find out. Right? Yeah. And some, something I'm mm -hmm. trying to your first draft of. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with regard to this munition factor, or no, this. Uh, <coughs> munitions? Not, uh, like not munition factor, but. Uh, baby food. Baby food. Baby food. I mean, <laughs> so I mean, if. Uh, I was just trying to think of a you know non a non munitions factory yeah, place where there yeah. was ongoing systemic and not just this particular incident long term contribution to uh, malnutrition and poverty in a particular area with some complicity non some non complicity um, and some uniform some non uniform people and um, etc. Et and yeah. so I mean first, I mean in order to how bad this production is, you have to also know, I mean, how bad is actually the product. 
how many people get cancer from things like that, right? So it might be that all over, it might could be, even though it actually gives a few people cancer, it is better that they get it than not get it. It could be. That I don't know. Uh, so, but it, and if that is the case, then of course it's problematic to say that they are liable because of what they're doing, even though Americans don't need it because they have all the products, but maybe those people who are using this product don't have a lot. But, um, and I'm not really interested here in to what extent it is permissible to kill ordinary affluent people. Um, that is just because I bracketed in this paper. But it could be that actually that is more efficient than trying to have a, mi a military intervention in order to force governments to start to change their behavior. Right? It could be. It could be that it would be better <laughs> and more efficient that the protector said, "Start doing that," or we just will continue to kill one or uh, three uh, affluent people at random every day until they do it. Mm -hmm. So that could be more efficient, actually. Mm -hmm. But since I was asked to talk about military use of military force, I will be talking about terrorism. Can I open it up for lots of hands? I'm afraid I don't know you all as well as David did, so I will uh, I will start taking a list. <coughs> and I'll start with Yanina. <laughs> Who you do know. You know her. <laughs> she was actually first as well. <laughs> Can you ask people to say their names? Yes, too, when you start, do say your name. So Yanina. Uh, Yanina de Oxford. Um, it's actually a minor question, but I overall I find like the main problem that I have with the paper is this attempt to analogize what is a redistributive war to a humanitarian intervention. And I, I, mean, I have a million problems with the analogy, but we'll just focus on one here. Essentially, you, you try to hold on to just four conditions, one of them being lastness. And I wonder how you ever last the fact that it is a last resort. And I wonder how you want, ever want to achieve that in a context where, first, it is not about um, seizing actually the infliction of bodily harm because of something much more structural that is the distribution of resources. And the other, um, the fact that you're not actually talking about um, a state-related problem, which both come from the fact that you base your argument on the analogy of a um, classical humanitarian intervention, because what you're actually suggesting is that um, you, the intervention here is meant to coerce the, the agent that might have um, an ability to change the situation or the unfair distribution rather than the intervention is meant for the agent who is intervening to help those in need. And that is what the classical humanitarian intervention is, right? That um, we intervene into a state in order to help the people in the state and make the government cease and desist from inflicting the harm. We're not actually intervening to in immediately to coerce the government to change its attitude towards the citizens in the long-term change structural issues, right? So um, how do you ever make the argument that that there aren't any other possibilities of changing the structure of knowledge like the redistribution of resources. And how do you, um, well, how do you reason that, not in the context of the state, that you, you can ever achieve such a thing as last, last resort? Okay, thank you. Uh, so there are two things. The first the thing about last resort, and the other thing whether or not it is a requirement for intervention that it is, that the suffering is caused by state. That's also the second part of all that. Well, let me first say a little bit about resort, last resort. I mean, obviously, to some extent, this is it will never be the last resort in the sense that. I mean, it is possible, probably, 
to solve this problem, or at least significantly reduce poverty-related deaths, right? Without humanitarian intervention. That is what Singer and Pogge is arguing for, right? So, uh, uh, and but the point is that they are dying today, right? So. Uh, how long should it <laughs> wait until the last risk? I mean, probably this will be solved within 100 years. I think so. So, but in the meantime, uh, 900 million people or something had died. But, but so these agents could just um, presumably just intervene and feed the people, right? As no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. No, they don't have food with them. So, uh, so uh, this is the battlefield. No, they don't that's have the analogy of humanitarian They don't have to. intervene Yeah, I do mention that, right? So there are three things, right? So, uh, <coughs> um, either the suffering is caused by state, or it is a state that, for some reason, failed to prevent it, right? Uh, so, of, of course, in this case, it will be something similar to the state that fails to prevent it. I do know that most people, when they talk about humanitarian intervention, want to kind of reduce it when the suffering is caused by a state. But I don't think that is necessary in order to justify humanitarian intervention toward another state. If, if another state just don't care about a certain uh, group of population who is starving, Right? Just they don't care <coughs> preventing it. Then I think uh, humanitarian intervention could be justified in order to force the state to to, to do something about this starvation. Uh, so I don't see I don't think that is a serious problem for uh, the analogy between uh, humanitarian intervention or redistributive. Uh, Shlomit had a one finger on this. Yes, yeah. I, it's me, yeah. Shlomit from Oxford. Um, I guess my worry with your extension, you're saying that even if a state fails to prevent, because when we talk about, I guess I have two problems with this analysis. First, I do think there is a huge difference, because even if you might say that there might be more responsibility on all states around the world in real life, right, to prevent the harm, yet I'm not sure that this is the kind of moral responsibility which passes some sort of a threshold which justified a third state to intervene. And in a, and in a way, I don't see what, why, why is a third state or NATO or some kind of international orga organization has any better right claim at, against the state who's just preventing from the humanitarian crisis to happen in somewhere else as opposed to a state that is causing that humanitarian mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. right, so I think there is a difference if I, if the state, if state A does not intervene, she, it sees state B struggling, suffering, the people there are dying and they're not intervening. And between a case where state C is the one that is responsible for the deaths because it stopped all the water getting into state B where the people are dying as a result. I think there is a, a huge moral difference in how humanitarian, in, in the in NATO or the UN or maybe State D intervening um, in such crisis. I don't think that just avoiding to in preventing or, or not interfering with humanitarian aid would be sufficient a sufficient <coughs> reason for humanitarian 
for forceful humanitarian intervention. I'm not sure if I understand. So you have two, two societies. I have two states. <laughs> two two state. societies in one society. The society B, people are dying. Okay, people are dying because there is no water there. Society A, which is not connected, they are not in control of the sources of the water. They have enough water. But they're not giving from their water to society. They see their neighbors are dying and they're not doing anything. They're not preventing the humanitarian aid, the humanitarian crisis. But they're not responsible for it. Okay? okay. You say it doesn't matter, and in any case, the angel and the protectors can intervene, or in, in real life, NATO or the UN can intervene. So, I, I understood this like this, right? So yeah. In one situation, you have suffering over here, yeah. and you have the state here, and they just don't care. They don't care. So they, they they're not responsible, but... So they fail to prevent it. In this case, you have suffering, and you have the state who does it. Yes. So you think it's a huge difference? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I can agree that there is some difference. Uh, but <laughs> if, if... To what extent would these people... I mean, these people have a... Uh, depends, <laughs> right? So in this case, it, it would depend on what is these people's reaction to intervention. Right? So if, if these people say that that not or whatever, <coughs> please come and help us. If they, of course, you shouldn't intervene in the military because there's no need for it. No, but the people just don't care. They're very egoistic. They just say, we just care about ourselves. We don't care about anyone else. So even if you tell me, I don't want to spend my resources on your country. I have more than enough water, but you know it will cost me money to pass the water tanks into your state. I can't be bothered what happens to you. I don't, I'm not going to fight you, I'm not causing this, but I have nothing to do with you. But I'm not interested. I don't understand. Why, why does this state have a claim against intervention here? When it is no, they have. You said that if we want to intervene, right? The okay, so the assumption here is that this state could have prevented this. They, they could prevent, but they're not the cause for this. No, yeah, yeah. If they could prevent it, yes. they don't care about it. Yeah. And they say, do not intervene, let them rather die. Because no, no, no. It's not saying do not intervene. You're saying, wh you're, what you've suggested is that the angel, the protectors, NATO, in okay. real life, sorry, I just have a problem with out of, uh, yeah. people from a different okay. uh, world <laughs> coming. Um, but NATO cannot intervene. You said that NATO can intervene against state S here, right? Um, and force them to provide water to the suffering yes. in the and I I just think okay. you can't okay. Uh, okay 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 so so here okay so the, so the situation is here what is so this is Earth now is this is Earth yeah right? so then the question is what is the relation between this state is not the African states right so what is the relation between this state and this all this suffering so I, I suggest that there are three possibilities. You can contribute by doing doing it, and you can contribute by enabling it, or you can fail to prevent it. Yeah. So if if it was none of them, they just uh, it's, it's just a poor state. Then of course it doesn't no, make much sense. Okay. Yeah. So okay. It, so, so and I agree that okay. if it is only a failure, <laughs> it is less cost you can impose on them, but it still could still be permissible. Okay, I think you two disagree. Well, my one observation would be too that we're getting slightly muddled between classic humanitarian intervention and what you're describing. But anyway, some will pick up on it's this. It's the future. 
Yitzhak is next. Yeah. Yeah. I find this a little bit, uh, actually this is something I've thought a lot about. I mean, how many soldiers and to what extent is it permissible to kill these soldiers? Uh, because... Uh, or should the soldiers be uh, the those who allow and able fail to prevent? No, I right. yeah. so and, and suppose, and this is a very realistic uh, scenario, we can talk about realism in this context, but... Um, Please, I um, welcome it. <laughs> yes, but, but suppose that the soldiers are poor. They happen to be yeah, poor, yeah. And, and that's why they are, not the they are not the enabler, no. but those who... Yeah. So I, 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 assume, I assume that's a plausible uh, description, that not all soldiers are poor, but a significant number of these uh, uh, soldiers in affluent countries are not among the very affluent. Mm -hmm. right? So and let's assume that to be the case. So they are not the really bad guys. So, so when you are they talking about enabling, you are talking about the state or the some of the most of the citizens of yeah. the affluent state. I am talking about uh, the yeah. I'm talking about the, basically the responsibilities of the affluent part of affluent yeah. countries. That's yeah. basically that's what I was, so. Only they are liable to killing, and they might not be part of, of the military forces. I'm not really yes. talking about Good. whether or not these people are liable to be killed <laughs> because you don't. In this way, I'm not talking about really about killing civilians or right? soldiers. Yes, there will be a killing of soldiers because and it's war. And why are they? And why are they liable? Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. So that, that's. Uh, I, I mean, one of the things that was puzzling for me when I read uh, about this doctrinal uh, responsibility to protect is that they don't mention killing of soldiers as a problem of intervention. Not in one sentence in this uh, commission's report is, is the death of soldiers an uh, obstacle for intervention. Not the one sentence. That's pretty amazing. So, uh, uh, so, so, so because they, 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 they are not part of the dominant view. They, they <laughs> <don't> take <laughs> that's possibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So uh, they're considering the death of civilians. That's that's a that's a huge obstacle for intervention. What, 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 how much problems it will make for the civilians? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. Intervention is not, it doesn't seem that they, they consider the soldiers who, who are set to oppose the intervention to what extent they can be killed, right? So, but I don't think, I, uh, I'm an orthodox, right? Partly, at least. So, um, to what extent are these people liable? Um, many of them will probably not be liable in a sense, uh, but still it could be permissible um, who, who are you speaking about now? The soldiers? Soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, if it is not many, we need to get them. I mean, after all, the, 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 num the numbers count. The, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think definitely the numbers count. So we are talking about 9 million children mm -hmm. a year. And in that tracking like Pearl Harbor, 1,242 people, I think, soldiers were killed. 1,000. Or something. So it's, so it's a very small number. Uh, so I don't. I'm not sure how many uh, soldiers would have ne would necessarily be killed. And then, but then the question is, <coughs> the, 
they will be fighting an unjust war. If they will, if, if they, they resist. resist. Sure. So, uh, assuming, of course, that intervention is justified. Uh, so they, they will be fighting an unjust war. So they become liable. And mm -hmm. then they can but be they become liable, but they are not liable by virtue <coughs> of the just cause of the protectors, but by Correct. virtue of something else. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and uh, if the protectors make uh, <laughs> a serious effort to inform Earthlings of their mission, right? Uh, to what extent? What could what could uh, what could Afghan country's government tell the soldiers? No, you have to fight. What could they tell them to justify? So ma make them, um, make it plausible that these soldiers are not failing in their duty to put down the weapons. Okay. I've got a couple of fingers on this particular point, but I'm going to ask you to be brief because I have a long list, okay? So I've got Guy, Yanina, and Victor who all want to come in on this particular point. And then I have a list, just to let you know, that includes Jeff, James, Henry, uh, someone I don't know at the back, and Victor, and someone I don't know at the back, and more. So we have to... Victor goes to the bottom if you yeah, have his finger. Cut me off. I will <laughs> cut you off, exactly. So Guy quickly, okay. Yanina quickly, and Victor, Victor quickly. Very quickly. Uh, in war, normally the soldiers, as we really I think was Isaac's point, I'm just corroborating it, the soldiers have substantial responsibility for the kinds of harms that war causes. So. Uh, if, for example, the United States is about to invade uh, uh, without good cause uh, Iraq, uh, there are some very, very culpable people for that, a small group of people sitting in Washington, D.C., uh, but the people in the mid-range responsibility would be the soldiers rather than the civilian somewhere who once voted for some government on some topic for the ha actual harm causes. You're not talking about the American soldiers? Not about the American soldiers, right? Yeah, but the American soldiers, they, they are the ones who are sort of more responsible than the individuals who just sit at home and once maybe voted for the leader who now sent these soldiers to do the fighting okay. and so on. In, whereas, in this example... You mean responsible <coughs> in morally culpable sense, or do you mean... Uh, yeah. I don't Well. Responsible as the ones who cause the harm and to some extent either know that they are causally responsible. No, 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 more than causally responsible. But this is not an example of attacking the uh, horrible Swiss banking uh, corpus, also known as HSBC. You're attacking here soldiers which have nothing to do essentially with the kinds of harms which were caused to the poor people. So the people who are likely to be killed do not correlate in any way to the people who are the ones causing the harm. Yes, and uh, that, that will also be a uh, situation for some uh, humanitarian intervention. In, this in, the state where, in the situation where the state just don't care about uh, the uh, failure of uh, food production, uh, farm, farm, for example, and farmers, farmers just die, and uh, we can't allow that. Uh, and they put the soldiers up so that we are not allowed to intervene. Shows that maybe they should be limited to. Mm. They're protecting the people who are doing the wrong. That's the point. I mean, I mean, we can inform them, right? They are coming in now. Put on their weapons and go home. 
Here's the reason why they're coming. You shouldn't fight us. You have a just cause. You should go home. And if you then don't go home, you could say, well, I just want to say one sentence in the response to the question, why doesn't R2P mention um, the killing of soldiers and whether they can ever be liable? And um, That is because the humanitarian intervention as conceived in R2P is not about coercing the state agent into doing something with the um, use of military force, like here bombing affluent states into changing the structural setup of the world, but it's overriding the sovereignty of an existing state in order that to do something yourself, like preventing them from inflicting bodily harm. So just to reiterate my point that I think, notwithstanding the like the merits of your point in and by itself, it's not an analogy of humanitarian intervention. And I think it would be more productive and better if, um, on the very important point of redistributive wars or wars to change structural setups, we would discuss them on their own merit with the, the thresholds that are akin to them, rather than trying to expand the concept of humanitarian intervention, which is about the seizing of um, existing infliction of bodily harm by the state on its own people. Yeah, that will stop. Okay, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that might actually be a good idea. I'll definitely think about it. But can I just ask you, I mean, even, I mean, soldiers will die even though you intervene not in order to force them to change their institutions. So why don't, why isn't the death of soldiers an issue for humanitarian intervention? That I don't understand. No, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that it shouldn't be mentioned at all, and maybe there is an omission. But it's much less of a problem than in your case, where you have where the prime the primary thing you have to answer is why would anyone in an affluent state be liable to be um, subjected to military force in response to in order to change the structural problem? And I'm just saying it as a different place in your argument as opposed in, in, uh, to how classically humanitarian intervention is conceived, which is a minimal approach. And then you're doing what you're trying to do. The agent that is intervening is doing that. You're not coercing the state into doing what you want to do. Do you know that? Yeah. Do you want to keep? keep I'll yeah, let I mean, can I just say, I mean, so what I'm thinking about is that there are three, three things. First is to what is the cost affluent people have to take on in order to do something with global politics? And then, to what extent is it okay to kill soldiers in order to, uh, to seize control over the government? And then, of course, to what extent uh, is, it, uh, is it permissible to have a certain number of civilians as uh, collateral damage? And, of course, the civilians might be uh, all these affluent, so that, that will reduce their um, weight in the proportionality consideration. Victor, yeah. I think you just simplify and strengthen your proposal a bit, just by thinking just in very simple terms to say, well, we have an obligation to provide some resources to them, let's call us the rich and them the poor. We have an obligation to provide for them some resources which they need to save their lives. We violate that obligation. Um, and when we do that, then, um, we now become liable to much greater harm to save their lives. Then when our soldiers come and defend us, they just act like blockers. They just block the people coming in from getting resources. And we want to know how many blockers you can kill to get the resources that you need for survival. And then most people think, well, um, even innocent blockers, um, you can kill them if you have an entitlement to go through the place where they are to get to the places that they need to survive, to survive or the place they need to survive. Culpable blockers, 
no problem, right? So they're soldiers, <laughs> gun them down, because they're all blockers. They're yeah. getting in the way of us getting the resources that we need. And they, they might not necessarily be culpable. I mean, yeah. even if they're not culpable, <coughs> right? It doesn't matter, because they're even okay. innocent blockers. If someone, so I, I need these resources for survival, this person's in my way. Um, and then you and think that's... Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, as long as there's many more of us that need surviving and there's one person in our way. So the, the, there's a famous Herald of Free Enterprise case where there were people drowning in the water, someone's climbing up a ladder, and yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. freeze on the ladder, and other people are trying to get up past this person, and eventually they just throw him off and kill yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a blocker, and it's permissible to do that, right? Because you're saving all these people who are in the water. Uh, yeah, no, no, thanks. I think it's a good uh, proposal. But I don't, I, I don't think you can just kill any number of innocent blockers, of course. No, no, any number. It's just as long as you're saving yeah. more. Um, and you're <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all right. Can I go to? <laughs> Sorry, the very. Are you dying to come in on this point? Because otherwise, I'll go to Jeff. Yeah, more or less. Okay. <laughs> 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 can I ask you to be brief, and then Jeff will come? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I put in a? <laughs> most of what I wanted to say has already been said. I mean, I think there's the, the, the finger is is. Yeah. Properly used here. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm quite happy to concur with that. I'm much more used to no fingers. I never chair with fingers except with philosophers. So, um, you be very brief, please, and then I'll go to Jeff. I'm of University of Hong Kong. Um, I was going back to the to the point why um, force can be used uh, to uh, for affluent people to do something. I think most liberal egal uh, egalitarians surprisingly have absolutely no problem to use force by the police, for example, for egalitarian justice to, to press people into paying their taxes for redistributive purposes. There, the question is not even starving, but you know, getting a video recorder, which uh, allegedly in our liberal democracies you need in order not to be poor. But suddenly when the question is about people starving somewhere on a <laughs> massive scale, then suddenly it's completely incomprehensible to say that you could, should uh, use force, you know, could use force on affluent people in order to help them. So I would like to help you just a little bit. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit help. I mean, but it is the difference because these, these people are not part of the same society. So True, yeah. but still. Yeah. Jeff. Well, um, I did want to say that this is a question about um, liability for omissions, and in particular, perhaps omissions to uh, fulfill duties that, that, that people have. And it's an issue about the liability also of people who protect people who fail to fulfill their duties from those who are seeking to enforce or compel the fulfillment of the duty. And in that sense, it's actually quite different. Nancy's example of the a company that's manufacturing baby food and sending it to Angola is actually quite different because that's a case of doing harm, whereas yep. the, the uh, mm -hmm. Gearhart's paper is concerned with instances Failing. of wrongfully allowing harm to occur. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to suggest a, an analogy with um, something like this. Imagine there's a gated community in some affluent part of the United States and lots of people starving outside the gates who are going to starve to death. There's no, no responsibility of the people within the gated community for their immediate plight. And third parties seek to but let's assume that the people within the gated community have far more food than they need could save the, the people who are starving outside the gates. 
um, people starving outside the gates are too famished to be able to break into the gated community on their own. So some third parties uh, seek to break into the gated community to steal the food on behalf of the, uh, the people starving outside. And the gated community, of course, has its paid guards there to protect these people. Now, the normal analysis of this kind of situation is that the, the people inside the gated community, even though they may have a duty to give away their uh, uh, resources to the poor people, nevertheless have a, 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 what, what most people call a sort of claim right to do wrong. That is, in this case, they're, they're doing wrong, but we believe that the property belongs to them and so on, and they've hired these guards to enforce the, the, their claim right to uh, keep their resources. This may be a helpful way to think about um, your example, just a kind of parallel case on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, and the, and the guards are, you know, this is what they've been paid to do. In some sense, this is this is what we all expect them to do. If somebody's breaking in to try to steal stuff, it's their job to do it. Uh, I agree with you. They ought not to uh, defend the possessions of the mm. people inside, whether they make themselves liable actually to be killed on behalf, uh, uh, in efforts to save the people outside. I mean, that, that I think is a kind, it's going to depend on judgments of proportionality internal to the notion of liability. It's going to depend on the numbers and, you know, the number of starving people and the number of guards who have to be killed and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, two things. I mean, I mean, my, my paper is definitely about failing to prevent, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also about doing. So, but in this in this case, uh, we are assuming that uh, uh, the gate community has not uh, have any. There is no contribution towards the salvation of the people outside. So, <coughs> but I don't think actually there is any right to do wrong. Uh, so it's hard to give a good argument for it. But if 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 a person has a certain duty to provide assistance, to no, sorry, just the, the right to do wrong is not a permission to do wrong, but I don't a, think a I think against intervention. No, it's just I, yeah, I deny that. Okay, I deny okay, that. I just wanted to make so sure you. I think. That, that I mean, if what you were yeah. denying. So the, the, I think the the, the duty of according to principle of assistance is pretty weak, right? So it doesn't demand that much of you. But I do actually think that you have a duty to give it up and you have to accept it that somebody else just imports that cost on you. So let's say, I mean, let's say uh, there's a person who is drowning and I'm standing nearby the pool where I can press the button uh, and drain away the water. I'm not doing it. Uh, maybe because I don't know about it. <coughs> in that case, I think and, uh, whatever duty I would have uh, to take on as a cost, I think any other person could impose it on me. Unless, unless it, the, the very imposition of this uh, uh, cost adds another cost, right? That had to be factored in. But, I, I, and, uh, but if that is factored in, I don't think this person has any right to resist having that cost imposed on me. You just have to accept that cost. So in my, in my word, I would say he's liable to that cost. Uh, and then <coughs> the same goes for this, uh, uh, for affluent people. So we are, I think we are <laughs> massively doing 
things we uh, have uh, a duty not to do, and we, we don't have any claim right against being uh, forced to stop doing what we are doing. I just don't think so. Um, the question to what extent these people who are obstructors will be liable to be killed, that would obviously depend very much about the information they have and, uh, uh, and numbers. Okay, James, yeah. Okay, um, to start with, I've got a kind of couple of kind of small, more technical points. Um, you said earlier that the ISIS report doesn't say anything about, uh, or isn't really concerned with the soldiers' lives. I don't think that's particularly fair because the ISIS report does talk about means, and it does talk about the fact that uh, interveners need to be very careful in their use of means and need to take on greater, uh, don't maximize force protection, and so on and so forth. So I think, kind of implicitly at least, they are. Kind of a, a little bit concerned about, you know, these these sorts of issues, but that's going to be a very small small point. Um, on the, I've kind of got another point about the the implication of the R2P R2P here. Now, um, since the ISIS report, the R2Ps evolved to be something different essentially. So it's evolved to be about four four crimes: war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. And it's kind of very uh, narrow views of what these are. And now my worry about the framing of the paper in terms of the RTP is you're massively expanding the RTP. And advocates of the RTP uh, in the UN or wherever are constantly saying, look, please, to, to, to people that are kind of sympathetic to the doctrine and keep on expanding it, they say, please stop trying to kind of push the RTP boundaries. Um, the RTP is what it's about. Let's, let's build a consensus about this. So that's kind of one question about the framing. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I've got a, this is a bigger point about the paper and I've got a worry that a sleight of hands has been performed. Sorry? A sleight of hands. So um, it, it's some sort of trick has been performed. And the my worry is this, that you talk, you use the ISIS criteria and these are kind of just war criteria you see to whether the aliens meet it or not. But you're, these criteria have kind of evolved over time. They're very much, I think, political criteria. So they're kind of the things about the UN importance of the UN Security Council, the importance of right intention, and even to a certain extent last resort. And then you apply these to aliens, and you, you say, well, most of these don't apply to aliens because, well, the aliens, there isn't any appropriate authority, um, right intention's not an issue here, and so on and so forth. Um, now, I think you kind of, you've got two options, really, to kind of avoid this sleight of hand. You can either say, well, we should have intergalactic principles, so there should be something like a Star Trek Federation that would be there to authorize, yeah. to, to be there for decision-making procedure to authorize whether there should be such an intervention, um, or whether you should have some sort of, you, sh you should just have more real-world examples, so NATO um, intervenes to do something like this, or whoever, the EU or whoever. So I think that the, the worry that I have is that you've, you've use these kind of very much political real world in the literal sense of in, in the sense of the term and the fact that these are worldly criteria and and you're saying they don't apply to an, um, an alien case and this I think potentially means that you can say it is permissible to intervene yeah, just, uh, you're correct that yeah. uh, they are talking about yeah. uh, right. maybe implicitly about soldiers but what I mentioned was that uh, they just don't mention the word soldiers yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so, um, and they don't, the narrative, they, they don't seem to think about it either, but that's another um, uh, thing. 
if, if I, I mean, I'm no, no expert on, uh, on RTP. So, uh, uh, but, and I also noticed that when the UN Assembly actually ratified, then the, it was narrowed. So I agree on that. Um, uh, but I, I, but I would I argue for uh, that it, it, uh, that this narrowing is uh, justified in the sense that it's world run. I mean, if there is a country, uh, you have a certain population who are starving, they just don't care about it. They just don't simply don't care about it. And mm -hmm. uh, they don't allow others to assist them. It's the Cyclone Nargis example, right? It's the Cyclone Nargis example, more than genocide. It's You've got people subject to a natural disaster and their government is not providing them, allowing yeah. outsiders to come in and give international assistance. Yeah, so if, if you don't allow that, uh, then I think military intervention could be justified. Yeah, I mean, I, so agree, I agree with you on, on, on a kind of moral level, but on a practical level, if you want the RTP to be a working doctrine that can take forward, I, think that, I mean, it's a small point, but I think it's just, yeah. the, I think we need to be careful of the way that we're framing um, yeah, I mean, I mean, on the practical level, of course, yeah. there is something missing in, I mean, we, we lack the aliens, so, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, uh, this is not, uh, I'm not trying to be very practical. Yeah. But the point about the slate of hand is actually right, that, that you didn't yet answer, is that the agent, the, the aliens are basically delegated this by someone else. And it, if mm -hmm. The right intention criterion, as I understand it in Just War Theory, is applied to the delegator, not to not to the aliens who might be delegated the role. So by you saying it doesn't yeah. apply, it actually, it was a, it was a bit of a sleight of hand. And that you, you, you go around the question of whose right intention should actually be, yeah, the aliens' right intention isn't the issue. The right intention is actually the angels' right intention that you should be looking at. Uh, the angels, the angels are, are the aliens. So the Kaiser, Kaiser, sorry, not the angels. Kaiser, Kaiser, Kaiser. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't really think intentions uh, is that crucial. Uh, uh, even if uh, so, after all this discussion, we all agree that this will be the right thing. But the only reason why Kaiser uh, uh, asked him to do it is because, for the fun of it, I think they should do it. Right, so I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think intention actually is crucial. But uh, okay. it's, uh, it's more like uh, I, yeah, I think. But then you should say that actually. You uh, should say yes. Yeah. Don't I say it? No, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, okay. Next, no, no. next uh, was the fellow at the oh, yeah, the yeah. back end. My name is Tiesa. I'm from Frankfurt. Um, I've got because I mean, it seems to be that you propose a solution to a structural problem of global injustice. And I mean, one question has already been posed. I mean, how should the aliens actually achieve that goal? And sometimes it sounds as if they just threaten the government. The government see the threat, and then there's no killing at all. And they will just sign a new uh, WTO treaty, and everything will be OK. And then you ask yourself, OK, if what happens if the governments are not, are not willing to accept that? But then, I mean, the first question is, but if you, after the war, I mean, what is the solution? Now, should this uh, treaty be signed and then everything is okay? But in a way, you're proposing, like the philosopher king or the author of authoritarian rule of the elite. Because, 
um, either the alien should change really the minds of democratic citizens, or they have to be in place then forcing all the morally right decisions. So a very basic question, I think, is what the relationship between morality and democracy is here, because in a way one might suspect that you kind of just want to get rid of democracy as it works today. Um, the second, I mean, it's just a provocative question. Second is that with the gated community, I think there's a difference whether you enter the gated community and steal something from somebody, or whether there are some revolutionaries outside and say, we want to change the entire system so that in the end there might be gated communities, but there are no people starving outside anymore, or the gated communities might just be a little bit more moderate, and the question of you know, right, um, rightful wrongdoing would disappear. So it, it points at the paper, it seems that you just say, well, they intervene in order to force somebody to give resources, which is a very concrete thing, and sometimes you talk about changing the structures, and after the structures have been changed, then things will be so legitimate that we don't have to get into, you know. So um, with the second question, which alternative are you more proposing? I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, it will be a problem if, if this intervention to go ahead and it succeeds, it will be a problem probably when uh, the protectors leave in the sense that uh, then, of course, democracy will continue and parties will struggle uh, for votes and they will uh, maybe change the institution back, uh, back again. But of course, that might very well happen. Uh, so the, there are two, two replies. First, and more many replies. Uh, first is uh, that. Uh, even so, it could be, uh, if, if it lasts for 10, 10 years, you will say 90 million children. Uh, uh, <coughs> another thing uh, is that, at least in the Norwegian government, there will be people who support this very much. This is what we need. This is actually what we need. We need uh, uh, force from the outside to, co to coordinate. Uh, <coughs> Government. Do you mean to force the Norwegians <laughs> to give out the oil money? Is that the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to have a coordinated effort to solve this problem. And that, 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 in order to get that, you need... You, so, I think um, the partly response is that it might go better than expected, in the sense that it could... Because, I, do you actually think that quite a few people have the moral belief that this is actually the right thing to do. And I actually also think that this will be solved in, uh, I mean, not in two or three years, but maybe 10, 50, 100 years. I do actually think that. By war? Um, sorry? By war? Uh, no. And oh. uh, because people don't think it's uh, morally right that these people uh, die from poverty related causes. I think actually that will be. By institutional solved. change or by voluntary contribution? Um, institutional. <coughs> but uh, so, so I do think the moral beliefs are here with us already. Uh, so uh, um, if <coughs> the aliens had a moral serum so they could have put in our drinking water, uh, maybe they should do that. But of course they don't have fluoride. <laughs> <laughs> Way at the back. Sorry, you are. Uh, Gremlin, Newcastle. Um, so you said that the soldiers. Are going to lack a reasonable reason to reject the kind of what the, the, the alien demands, or that soldiers lack a just cause in this war, or can't reasonably think they have a just cause. Is that, is that yeah? So, so what I what I, <coughs> I definitely would say the first. If 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 I end, I mean I, I'm 
I'm basically Kaiser's position now, right? So I'm, uh, but I, I, I tend to think that Kaiser should ask him to do it. Uh, and uh, but I'm so I don't think they have a just cause to resist. Okay. But I'm a little bit uncertain to what extent uh, they could reasonably believe that they ought to uh, resist. And that would very much depend on what happens the days before and what kind of information <coughs> the protectors are able to give them. Can I suggest two questions that may, I think may, these soldiers are right to ask at least. So the first question is about which is how difficult the whole exercise of, of apportioning responsibility for global poverty is. So mm -hmm. take it, and they're going to come up with all the kinds of tedious objections here, but nevertheless need to be canvassed or responded to, I take it, by the aliens. So uh, they can object that if you are going to wage, prepare to wage war on the people who support corrupt governments, you have to wage war also on the corrupt governments themselves, that they are as liable, if not more liable. And also anyone who supports a corrupt government when they could reasonably be expected not to support one. Then you've got um, all the overzealous governments that don't take, say, female empowerment very seriously and those kinds of things. Presumably they contribute as well. And those governments that don't support contraception. And then we get into the difficult area of reproductive rights. And, but some, some wise ass from a developed country is definitely going to say, well, the answer to this is, is condoms, aren't they? And that, that, might be, that might be kind of in bad faith. It, it, it might sometimes be wrong. But there's a difficult question here. I mean, it, it doesn't seem obviously right that if you, if you know your, your fourth child is going to die, that you're, you're still as morally entitled to, to have one. I mean, so, so there might be some very difficult questions here about what causes global poverty. And so yeah. the, the soldiers might, might reasonably ask the aliens for clarification on this. I mean, how can they be sure? I mean, presumably if the soldiers think that their, their country is being uh, uh, punished or tapped for resources more than the aliens are justified in, in, in taking from that country, then they may well have a right to resist. And so the, they are at least you know, justified in asking that question, and presumably the aliens owe them an explanation of, of, of why the burden falls, the precise extent it does fall, on them rather than all these other nations who also have some related responsibility. The second thing is they might just also, interesting when you think about this, they might just reject, well, is there any scope for people to reject your notion of just cause here? So the notion of just cause says, on, on your account, you're saying that whenever X culpably fails to discharge their duty in respect of a, a basic human right or fundamental human interest, I take it, um, to a sufficient extent, then there's a just cause for war against X. Is, and if that's true, then that might just seem, well, it's, it's worth asking whether they, it, it's possible isn't it, it's just too expansive a notion of just cause. I mean, that would seem to yeah. make pretty much everyone in the world, a lot of people in the world, liable to, to to be on the receiving of a just cause for war, because once you've taken into account that, all the different rights that, that there are, including kind of that, for example. Rights. Well, I mean, so if that's true, not just of global poverty, but also of other equally important civil and political rights, for example, then the scope of people who might uh, fall foul of this requirement is going to expand. I'm not. I mean, okay. So the question is, I mean, would there be any? So I wonder. I mean, do you think this would? So the second question is, do you think this would lead? to a more expansive account of just cause that makes a lot more people uh, liable to violence, presumably, but not, obviously, we take these other factors into account. Um, so we apply the just cause criteria after this. Okay. Or is it the kind of thing that where we should tighten up the other just cause criteria to make allowance for the, the, the relative ease with which somebody might satisfy this one? And so they can satisfy just by negligently failing to do the exact extent of their duty in respect of some basic human interest, then I say, are you, are you kind of sanguine about that, that slightly more expansive idea of what will count as just cause, or do you think we should tighten up the rest of just war theory to, to, to 
So lots of there might be lots of just causes then, but there might be there might still be few justified wars in the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't understand why why allowing military force because of global poverty will expand the causes for war so much. I mean, there are not many other things that are as bad as that. I mean, don't you think that? Well, it might expand it because partly because we're we're. But this makes explicit the idea that, that, that negligence is, is grounds for just cause. Um, but it also ties yeah, but it's in... only negligence with regard to something really serious, like, for example, 25,000 children every day. I mean, if it's negligence with regard to something which is not very important, of course not. Yeah, for sure, example, I, I take it for example not turning off the air conditioning, sure. that's wrong, I think. But that is not a cause for war. Sure. <laughs> the line to the aliens has been dialed. You think it's permissible to force it on again, <laughs> promotional means. <laughs> what about oppressing the Chinese, the, the oppression of the Chinese? I don't know. You don't know? No. Because they enable it, after all. Yeah, if everyone yeah. will resist slightly more, everyone will resist, I think that it would be different there. And that's, but, uh, it's, uh, then so why not other civil political rights that are as important? Yeah. I mean, is I this the case where you do, you do, the cutoff point lies at the right subsistence and doesn't apply to uh, free speech or, or freedom of worship or anything like this? I mean, do you think that, that the, the distributive stuff is more important than the civil and political stuff? Or, I mean, and if not, then there must than the category of, of the fundamental rights. To well, okay, so let me put it this way. Let's say there were 25,000 people who didn't have free speech on Earth. I think the case for intervention from outer space is less strong, yes. Okay. Um, but um, I, there was a first question. You had yeah. a long first question. Yeah, sorry. And that's, uh, I think I should address that because that's okay, what people yeah. wonder also. And that is, but surely, affluent may be a little bit responsible, but other people are more responsible. Why don't you attack them? That was the first question, right? You know, as we is there any grounds to that at all? Yeah, so, uh, so the idea here is that, so if they are more responsible, yeah, you should take them, if you can, and if it, if it helps. So the assumption here is that it will, won't help. Uh, and uh, in the sense that what I'm thinking of is that countries like America, UK, Norway, we have well-functioning uh, governments, and if we were forced to do this, we could actually manage to do it. Some of these non-organized societies, then they don't have uh, this ability. So you can't really force them to do what they're unable to do. But we seem to be able to do what the protectors try to force us to do. At least that is what, for example, Thomas Poggier, Singer, many other people argue that we are able to do that. So, uh, and then the question is, do we then have uh, still a complaint that we are forced to do something, to do something that others also ought to do, but will not be forced to do because they are unable to do it. No, I don't think we have a, uh, a valid claim against not being forced uh, for that reason. We might have some fairness uh, claim towards these other people, but that's not. Uh, I don't think that's essential. Okay, I've got three names left on the list, so I'll start with Laura. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I have a question of clarification on your understanding of assistance-based duties. So when I think about assistance-based duties, I usually have in mind things like human 
duties of humanity, so these typically are duties to help those in need so long as this is not too costly to yourself. They're imperfect duties. It's not that you owe them to any specific individual, but when you see people in need and you judge that it would, wouldn't be too costly to yourself, you should help them. And typically, they're not enforceable. When I read your discussion of assistance-based duties, they don't seem to have these characteristics. First of all, they don't seem to be um, imperfect. They seem mm -hmm. to be perfect. There's, mm -hmm. there's a link between yeah. a failure to, the failure to assist and the person who is dying, for instance. So it, it seems that they look a lot more like duties of justice than duties of assistance. It seems that you're breaking someone's entitlement. And what I want to ask you is, do you actually think that they're duties of assistance or you think they're duties of justice? Because there are views of justice that say that when anyone falls below a certain threshold of entitlement, then everybody else's entitlements are put into question. So that sort of your duty to help is actually a duty to give something that the other people who are suffering are entitled to. And if that is the case, then the idea of an outside intervention to enforce the rights of these four people might seem more plausible if you think that these assistance-based duties are actually duties of justice that is to, um, you know, it's not that you should be good with resources that you own and give them to the poor people, it's that you're actually holding on to resources you're not entitled to, that they belong to them. And if you, know, if you were um, ready to buy this particular uh, kind of framework, I think it would be easier for you to justify outside intervention even when we are talking about assistance because it would be still a matter mm -hmm. of justice. I'm not sure actually if uh, what you have is something they are entitled to, but what I definitely think is also discussed with Jeff mm -hmm. like half an hour ago is that uh, uh, you, the person who has a duty to assist has no duty to resist having to give up what he has a duty to give away. So, for example, if you have a duty to take on certain costs in order to save the person in the, in the, in the pool, all the people can impose that cost on him. Right? And, uh, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, let's say, you have a duty to take on test 10 cost units in order to save the person from drowning, whatever that is. Right? So, uh, but you don't know about this person's drowning. So you are not coupled, you are innocent by stuff. Uh, so, and then you are imposed these 10 cost units, and the other person is saved. So the person who is about to drown hasn't lost anything, you have lost 10 units. In that case, it could be that you or this other person, all the way around, of course, but the, per the person who has saved could offer you compensation afterwards. Because it was not so that he was entitled to these unit, 10 units. But I do think, I don't think you have any right to resist. No, I don't think so. Very quickly. Regarding this, uh, it seems to me that in the, uh, you are right. There's no place for calculation at all. Sorry? If those duties are uh, justice-based duties, there's no place for any kind of calculation. Calculation. Uh, it's becoming obligatory. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible that there are two kinds of, of obligations, justice-based duties, and some need or justification for assistance, which is not duty at all, but something that could be calculable. Yeah. Usually it's a duty, but of a different Or in some kind of imperfect, <coughs> imperfect duty, but those two seem to be very different from each other. Uh, it, it's possible that uh, justice-based duties 
uh, regarding uh, catastrophes might be very rare, and in such cases, uh, no calculation is needed. Yeah. What, what do you mean, no calculation? I don't understand. Well, uh, as, as, you, as you just did, uh, that uh, it's calculated how much does it cost uh, those who would help or assist. It, 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 it would be their duty to, to do whatever it's needed. Yeah, they, they have a duty to take on certain cost. The calculation is for just to put the name on the cost. I mean, there's always a limit on how much cost you have to give. No, no, in other cases, uh, it would be just Kay. a matter of calculation. Yeah. I have to move it on so we can get our last two questions. Sorry. Or did you want to very quickly respond? Okay. Last two. So here and then Seth. And then we'll... Okay. Uh, um, sort of related to this, but I guess from the other side, of sort of sympathetic to your argument for the just cause, but think that you, um, well, at least for the, the account of liability of uh, affluent nations and underpins it, but think that you can spend a lot of time on sort of the moral categorization of the facts, but the actual account of the facts seems a bit impoverished. In that sense, I thought you could draw a bit more heavily on Poggy and on <coughs> others as well. So for the notion that colonialism is a generational issue seems to me kind of implausible, and, and you, that links into your remark that relations are mostly about trade, and that also seems implausible. I mean, there are deeper issues about finance and investment and property rights and so on none of which are naturally classified to do with trade, that are deeply embedded in colonial history and sort of post-colonial circumstances. And they seem much more important to do the sorts of things for example, that Pog is interested in his account of a global basic structure. Okay, what poverty. do you mean? When you say it's not generational, what do you mean? I mean, you're not colonising much well, today, I mean, are they? If, I mean, if I steal um, your ring and pass it on to my children and they now enjoy the benefits of enjoying your ring. Maybe that's a generational sort of issue. But theft of rings isn't a very good model for understanding property and investment <coughs> relations in the contemporary economy. I mean, they depend, they're all mostly intangible properties, they depend upon titles secured through registers and other sorts of implements that depend upon a huge infrastructure, a bureaucratic infrastructure, a legal infrastructure to keep them going. Um, I don't think the, mo the model of stealing rings and passing them on to your children is a, is a it's just a classic generational justice issue. It's just a very helpful model for understanding economic and legal relations in the contemporary global economy, which are based upon huge, continuing administrative and bureaucratic endeavours to keep certain structures in place and functioning. And I think that's the sort of idea that Poggy has in mind when he's talking yeah, about but that is not structure. That is not the same as in invading another country with arms and uh, colonising it, is it? I mean, but if you think about the situation in, colon in colonial situations, it has implications for distributions of property, um, registered title, and what was customary mm -hmm. title, and customary title gets overridden when a cadastre is created, and that then has implications for who owns the land and who gets the benefits from growing cash crops on the land. There's, I think there's just a lot there that to just say it's a generational issue about theft. Yeah, so in, in, in that case, I'm mean, talking about that under the, labeling, under the label of enabling harm, right? Not the, and yeah, I think it's an important distinction between enabling and doing harm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, thought, I thought the account of uh, enabling harm well, again, was kind of quite implausible. For, I mean, when one actually looks at the details of the sorts of institutional arrangements which, which are in place, I mean, yeah, a state, if, it was a, if there were state of nature property rights, enabling might be the right model, but I don't, I don't think that's a very plausible account of contemporary economic relations. But another thing I wanted to say, I mean, that's, that's kind of factual questions, I guess, but another sort of 
uh, issue, um, you talked about issues of ignorance on populations on the whole. To the extent that there are institutions who have an important function in generating that ignorance, and you could analyse that in terms of ideology, or you could use a less loaded type of analysis. I mean, we don't, for example, think, well, I don't imagine we think that, say, German or Japanese citizens in the Second World War can plead their ignorance when that ignorance is the result of institutions set up to create certain states of mind. And it's not clear to me that citizens of affluent countries can plead their ignorance in their defence when that ignorance results from certain institutions and expectations that are set up there precisely to make certain systems more tenable and more acceptable to people whose basic inheritance is enlightenment humanist. I don't understand why that... I mean, first, first of all, I'm choosing with regard to ignorance. <coughs> there are people out there who deny progress account, right? And they are not, and they are not institutional, uh, been tricked to anything. They are intelligent people on good universities. So, so, so if, if these people are able to think that progress is wrong, it's not implausible that my mother also could think it's Thomas, Thomas progress is wrong, right? I mean, if, if intelligent people disagree with to, to Thomas Poggi, it could also be that ordinary African people could disagree with Thomas Poggi. That's one thing. The other thing is that... Uh, sorry? What are you saying about your mother? <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is that uh, uh, I don't see why, if some people in our government set up institutions in order to hide that we are a contributor to global poverty, and they do it in such a way that we cannot be reasonably be, be blamed for not finding out that they have done it. And they are I think the notion of hiding is maybe not the most helpful notion. Okay, I'm going to give Seth the last question. Great, thank you. Uh, yeah, the, the enabling um, contributing distinction is obviously very important to the paper. Um, you present some sort of some, some, some okay kind of in case, sort of intuition pump cases to try, try and motivate it. Um, but there's, there's no attempt to provide a theoretical account of why these bare facts about causation should have um, significant moral implications. Um, and that I, think is, that, that, I think, is the challenge for anybody who wants to make this sort of argument. I mean, this is the challenge that Jeff set in um, the 1994 paper, um, pretty much on innocence and killing, killing innocence and self-defense. It's how, how those bare, bare causal facts, if they are such, can be translated into uh, moral significance, except just by saying, well, we think that this guy would be liable to more than that guy would be, and this guy was an enabler and that guy was a contributor. Um, so I would like to see a theoretical account of why, of why it makes a difference. Um, the, the, and then whether, it, whether or not there really is this difference. On the push and kick case, I thought, okay, so I do this, right? right don't know what's around me. I just stretch my arms out, and oh, I've just knocked, this, I've knocked the cart and the cart is now rolling down the hill towards the guy. Okay? Or in the second case, the kick case, I go, and I knock the, I knock the rock out of the way. Right? So the first one is I'm contributing, the second one's enabling. In both cases, I don't know anything that's happening. So it's, it's the bare causal facts that are different in those two cases. And I just want to know why, um, <coughs> why we should attribute moral significance to that. But I don't think it's something you can... Oh yeah, I can do that easily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think it's possible to say that people have a strong duty to um, to try to avoid to take care of the bodily movements and what, uh, and uh, uh, the actions and direct causal processes that is set put in place. So if you <coughs> so if you throw a rock. 
right? Uh, we all know that the rocket comes to a stop pretty soon, normally, right? So, <coughs> so you have a responsibility to find out how far it will go and things like that before you But if you remove a rock, there's no end to it. I removed it forever. So it's hard to say that it's difficult. I think it's plausible to say that we can't help hold, be held responsible for the removal of the rock in the same way as we are held um, responsible for throwing a rock. Because uh, when you remove a rock, you have removed it forever. And if uh, the, the trolley comes tomorrow, yesterday, or to, uh, one year, you will have enabled it. Enabled it. There's still there's still knowledge, and you're basically <coughs> saying that you know um, yeah. when you throw a rock that rocks land, right? No, I'm saying that. Uh, Whereas in this case, I've stretched my arms out. All I've done is initiated the causal sequence. What I've done is physically exactly the same in the two cases, um, literally identical, um, except one I've initiated the causal sequence. One I've, yeah, I mean, yeah, initiated yeah, the yeah no, no, no. So, so it's so, not. So, so the, the idea what I was exploring is more. Like uh, it could be possible, I'm, I'm just joking when I said it's easy. It could be plausible to give us some kind of contractual argument for why we are responsible for uh, complete coastal processes, but not removal of obstacles. Okay. Interesting. Lots of interesting responses to what was a very provocative paper. Uh, and I want to thank Nancy very much for her initial response, and to you for standing and taking on the, the comments for the so heat. long. It was <laughs> and, and, the, and the audience for putting up with someone who doesn't like Finger. <laughs>